everyone. Welcome to Hyperlinking Humanity with Grant and Kyla, where we are going to talk about the interplay between technology and humanity and provide some unique perspective on the current state of affairs, as well as talk about our path moving forward. Thank you for listening. Hello, Kyla. Hey, Grant. We are going to be talking today about cybersecurity and some of the implications that it could have for nation states and people moving forward. I'm definitely excited to talk to you about this thing, figure out some solutions to a lot of problems. I think the best place to start is to talk about Austin, Texas. This happened a few weeks ago, mid-February. Austin got hit by pretty significant inclement weather. A winter storm knocked out the power grid. Housing was disrupted. Hotels, water, heat, basically. Basically, everything that could have gone wrong from an infrastructure standpoint went wrong. That's actually a very clear example of what could go wrong with cybersecurity because a few weeks later, there was an incident in Florida where a hacker gained access to a water treatment facility and increased the level of lye, L-Y-E, which is poisonous after a certain level. Fortunately, this was caught and the water wasn't sent to people's homes, but that's a town of 15,000-ish people. The grid and our infrastructure is very vulnerable. The other thing to consider with this is in the case of Austin, you know, these aren't things that you can just reboot and fix or, or buy a new computer or whatever it may be. Like the, a lot of this infrastructure takes significant time to relaunch. And in some cases, it can take up to two years. That's the cataclysmic doom and gloom outlook on how significant this is. But I thought it'd be useful to paint the picture that this type of stuff is happening and it could be worse, much more so than it's already been. So I'm curious, when you say worse, what, I guess we can just start there. What is the absolute worst case scenario that you can see from a cybersecurity attack? On one hand, a lot of the things that have happened are really significant and really troubling. But on the other hand, we haven't had a Pearl Harbor type event in cyber or an 11 type event in cyber. And then the question is, well, a lot of these attacks are pretty significant. So what would qualify as that? And I think a useful heuristic is right now, a lot of cyber attacks are measured in dollars and cents in their damage. And eventually, once we start measuring them in, in blood and flesh, while it might be a little graphic, that's that's realistically where this is going to go. There's been, I think it's like 70% of hospitals in the U.S. don't have an IT administrator. And there have been continuous rampings of, of ransomware attacks on hospitals. Within the past year, the first death associated with a ransomware attack happened in Germany. The big problem is we've systematically put everything online without asking whether or not it's a good idea. And with the Internet of Things continuing full steam ahead, and a lot of companies and people are advocating for more advancements in technology. There's certainly benefits to it, but I think we haven't done a good job of recognizing that there are trade-offs. That creates a pathway for other people to gain access to systems that they otherwise shouldn't. How this could get worse is, realistically, there could be significant counterpunch or an amplification of an existing disaster with Texas and then Florida. What if those had happened at the beginning of the pandemic when hospitals were already struggling? These types of things, I think, aren't being talked about broadly, and they're a little hard to grapple with because they're pretty intangible. A lot of our infrastructure, if that just went away, a lot of the way that the world works right now would kind of fall apart. The biggest challenge is our infrastructure can go down.
Because everything is based off of the grid in the cloud too. So do you see, is there something that companies can implement up in, in the cloud and sort of secure things that way? Or is it pretty vulnerable across the board? The main takeaway is that by and large, anything that is connected to the internet can get hacked. And even things that aren't connected to the internet, so far the, the most successful cyber attack in history was conducted by the U.S. But this is covered fairly extensively in the, a book called This Is How the World Ends it's by Nicole Perlroth. So the, the main challenge is you had this, she goes into greater detail, but essentially the U.S. in with Israel was able to infiltrate a air-gapped system and it was Iran's nuclear facilities. And why that's significant is that the facility is not connected to the internet the U.S. intelligence networks were able to insert a virus into this nuclear facility, and they essentially spun the nuclear material out of control, destroying the plants and, and the progress that the Iranians had made. The challenge there is that even if you aren't connected to the internet, you're still susceptible to risk. And I guess the better framing for the answer is People just aren't aware that these risks exist and having some sort of informational security, cyber awareness, educational platform, even if it's just for companies, would be pretty substantial. I started off in, in finance and it just seemed like that was super insecure. And I know the U.S. Treasury got hacked a few months ago and that was swept under the rug. I think as an individual, it's hard for me to wrap my head around. And when I have conversations with people who aren't super deep in the cybersecurity space, it's like, well, you know, if they have my data, it's no big deal. And so I think overcoming that narrative is, is really hard because people are just like, it's so out of my control. Like it's so abstract. And I find myself struggling with that too. We think that our information is secure, but at the end of the day, it's, it's probably not. And how do you grapple with that um, internally? And what do you do about it? One thing I've, I've wondered about is in the future, what are the next generations going to look at this time period? They're either going to be more advanced than us from a technological standpoint, or they're going to be significantly less if something cataclysmic happens. But you know, the question I have is, are they going to look back at, at this period and equate to what we are doing online as running around without clothes, where all of our information is just connected and easily indexed. We went full steam ahead on the internet and we didn't realize that a lot of these things can actually get pieced together. And part of that's just the nature of unintended consequences. We're sort of approaching, I feel like people say this in every generation, but I feel like we're sort of approaching like this fork in the road. Like will we enter into this entirely decentralized society? Like Bitcoin led, fiat is like totally debased. And, and then how do people interact in a society like that? Or are we going to enter into a society where, you know, the, the Fed is essentially controlling every move? So like magnifying what's going on right now and central planning becomes uh, the only option because markets get so unstable, people get so unstable, society gets unstable. So I think that's what's going to happen. It's this um, question of centralization or decentralization. And both of those have different security implications. The centralization and decentralization thing is probably going to be a pretty significant, I guess, meta trend that's going to go on in the next decade, I'd say, probably maybe even longer. If you think about just stepping back to the state of affairs right now, the globe is as centralized as it's ever been in human history. The Internet certainly is one of those reasons. There's also the question of if the internet's going to splinter and there'll be like a splinter net, and certainly China's already done that with the firewall. That's that's one question that 
is definitely in the realm of possibilities. Russia and China in the past year have proposed a new internet standard, and then cybersecurity firm audited it, and it turns out it's just a lot easier for them to exert control over the system, so you can influence what sites people can go to, but then you can also actively monitor if people are actually going to the right sites that you want. I think the other thing, the other thing you could equate cybersecurity to is the pandemic, in that the pandemic is a clear example of how interconnected not only just the world is country to country basis, but how each system right now is so interwoven. And if you had a cyber attack, that same similar feature w would clearly emerge. There's a lot of public distrust in government. There's a lot of disunity, certainly in the U.S., but also in other places in the world. So there's a lot of political backdrop to this. There's a lot of mishandling of significant public policy events and legislation. And then on top of all that, you just have a lot of people that feel disenfranchised. I think a lot of this stuff has to get solved and remediated through large-scale changes. Some of the initial solutions are the U.S. government monitors you know, all the internet traffic similar to, not totally, totally accurate, but Israel monitors a lot of the activity on the internet for cybersecurity threats. So that's one example is embracing big government, kind of having them keep a watchful eye. The other side of it is a private uh, corporations taking the reins. You, you definitely have that with Apple and Google having bounty, bug bounty programs. But at the same time, Microsoft is clearly in a lot of trouble with this FireEye hack and SolarWinds hack. And so b both solutions haven't really been successful or there isn't an appetite for them. So with the most recent Microsoft attack, when I was reading about it, I thought it was really interesting because a lot of the discourse was going on in Twitter. People like, okay, you need to do this if you're experiencing this within your server. Chris Krebs was posting about it and um, he is the partner of the Krebs Damons Group. There's two Krebs in the cybersecurity space. So I thought that was interesting. And then the code from Microsoft was posted on GitHub. So I think that open source mm. solution to this stuff is interesting. That's also a double-edged sword, right? Because the hackers could easily be like, okay, well, you know, they're posting the solutions online so we can just fix that. So I think that there needs to be this open source dialogue, but on a really secure server. <laughs> it seems like it seems like the government is stepping up. I know that they've uh, highlighted a lot of stuff in some recent briefings. I think uh, private organizations, they caught the Microsoft attack before the government did, I believe. So maybe yeah. that, yeah, you have to have a combination. But to your point, the incentives are not structurally aligned here, where for a lot of companies, and like, this doesn't even need to be, we don't even need to be discussing like the Apples and the Googles of the world. Like this is for the five people that run some power plants in the middle of the country, a lot of these entities are exposed and investing in IT infrastructure and security is expensive. But I guess the challenge is from the onset, security isn't really an add-on. It's not really, it's a aspect of the system you're designing. And if you don't have that in mind from the beginning, then it's really hard to latch it on afterwards. And the other thing I'll, I'll mention is having some sort of new legislation. The fact that SolarWinds password was SolarWinds123 is, is really 
disheartening. It's, it's pretty comical. There's no reason why such a critical software should be allowed that like that should be a password. And legislation would obviously add some inherent costs to every company, but having something like that, or at least a strong punishment scheme set up so that if, if a company has a hack like this, they have to disclose it. And they also have to pay a, a large enough fine where it's not worth dealing with that in the long run. I think that's one way to kind of initially breach this. But yeah, it's it's definitely the, the incentives here are not ideal. And I guess that's just the nature of defense and offense. Yeah, so Ricardo was in a similar situation, right? With the security camera hack, their password and username mm-hmm. were found on the internet. And so we're sort of running into the 2008 problem, right? Like what happened with the big banks is like, okay, like you can lose people's money. You can put them in financial yeah. But there's no, there's like just a slap on the wrist. So I think with legislation and thinking about how do you structure it, it's two-sided once again. How do you make sure that you're not capping innovation and saying, okay, you're going to have to face huge fines if something happens, but also ensuring that data is safe and protected. I really like that connection because it's, it's a very stark example and very clear of what ended up happening, what, what should have probably happened and what yeah. ended up happening. I will say just kind of stepping back on the political landscape, it, it does seem that this solar winds attack has really reinvigorated interest in this debate. This wasn't a equivalent to a cyber attack. This was espionage. And having that recognition, I think that's helpful. But yeah, I you just got to wonder if the competency industry gridlock and then also paying the pockets of the politicians with lobbying efforts if that if that will stymie this or not yeah. but hopefully the appetite's there now the other thing that's useful to keep in mind too is a lot of journalists get targeted online and they have to deal with a lot of countermeasures to make sure that their information is safeguarded and they're safe but they're not just going up against random hackers, similar to how random companies are dealing with ransomware attacks. They're also going up against state-sponsored groups, and they're basically dealing with nation states waging total war on them. And they're just an individual trying to fight back. It's not just a U.S. problem, but that'd be the equivalent of, of having someone, you know, getting getting a carpet bombed by a nation state and just saying, oh, you guys can figure it out, build your own shelter. That type of stuff isn't sustainable in the long run. And and I guess that's the other important piece. The U.S. is apparently by far still the leader in offensive cyber measures. And we're par none. The attack that I mentioned, one for the Iranian nuclear facility, that is still state-of-the-art tactics and abilities. And I'm sure there's other attacks that we don't know of in operations. But so on one hand, the U.S. is clearly leading. And so it's also kind of disingenuous when we're complaining about getting hacked by solar winds because we do the same thing. But at the same time, you're also dealing with the fact that the internet, it's so costly now to, to have any one of these attacks hit you. Whereas if you're an attacker and you get locked out of a system, you can just keep trying. If you're defender and an attackers breach walls, so to speak, then they can totally lay waste to your entire infrastructure overnight. The challenge with the internet and a lot of these attacks is one, defense is much more valuable than offense, and you can't necessarily see tangible value from the defense early on, especially if you're successful and you, you prevent attacks. You don't have that counterexample 
of of saying, oh, well, we saved this much, you know, money or, or whatever the costs were. And then the other challenge is not only nation states are engaging in this, similar to other warfares in the past, but you also have the independent actors. And soon you'll have programs that are bolstered by artificial intelligence. They can just keep throwing code chunks at things. This is something that (laughs) I've thought about with some of the cryptocurrencies. There's a lot of bravado about how the crypto industry hasn't been hacked, or at least like certain certain protocols haven't been hacked and that's encouraging and i know i know to separate it there have been a lot of a lot of recorded hacks for exchanges north korea for example is very good at that but there's also just the issues of anything that a human makes there's going to be an error in it that you bring up bitcoin because there's a really good tweet from matthew green where he basically was like it's really interesting that bitcoin exists because it's functioning in this environment where we don't have trust but it exists because people don't trust. And so they're putting their trust in something else. But should that be trusted too? Just the general state of affairs is there's a lot of frustrations in general. And for in, in an entire generation that grew up digitally native, a lot of the things that exist the way they are right now just kind of don't work the way that you'd think they should. And one example is if you're trying to transfer money, it still takes days for it to to move between accounts. And you'd think when you can have a phone call with someone thousands of miles away, real time, that type of ability to seamlessly move money should be possible. And it isn't. Money is something that's inherently very political in terms of its influence and power structures. But, you know, that that, that same type of influence also raises questions where if we move more and more of the world into a digital space, as Bitcoin is certainly trying to do and other projects as well in crypto, you raise the question of, all right, what are the blind spots that we have right now that we aren't seeing? I guess a quick one that's worth highlighting because it, it also comes back to that close of the loop on the 2008 mm-hmm. reference you had. That was an instance where the system clearly was broken. You could argue that we shouldn't have gotten there in the first place, but regardless, we reached a point where intervention needed to happen in order to avoid pretty significant consequences and outcomes. And unfortunately, we were in a place where we had a system a centralized system that could step in and pull a lever essentially to fix or remediate some of the issue. With something that's truly decentralized, you're giving that up. And so if Bitcoin, for example, was fully adopted by, let's say, 2050, the world is on a, the precipice of some sort of disaster from a financial standpoint. And and I say that because not as a certainty because Bitcoin's inherently flawed and I don't know enough about it, but just from a purely looking at a human perspective, there's always going to be blind spots and there's always going to be ways that people will bend the rules in their favor or there'll be some sort of incentive structure that encourages certain behavior that's bad for the rest of the populace. And so there'll likely be some sort of situation. And if you're dealing with truly decentralized platforms and it's really hard to suddenly step in and fix that and even simple things like the hash rate for bitcoin those things are heavily contested and you have to vote and a lot of the times they have to fork (laughs) all these protocols and so if you're suddenly trying to make a mission critical decision whether it's money or some sort of cyber offensive removing some of the centralization isn't necessarily a good idea 
I think the issue with everything is there almost has to be like a governing body leading these decisions and organizing people. Because I think to your point about human nature, it's just like fact that human nature, you know, we're selfish. I think the premise of the idea is really interesting. But we've talked at length about what this concept of decentralization requires. Like it requires a certain person to be stable enough, mm-hmm. to be safe enough, um, to have enough like security in their life, to be able to lean into that and say, oh, I don't need a central planner. I've got everything figured out. and. Truthfully, that's not a large percentage of the world. I don't think that a lot of people can look at themselves and say that they're entirely self. Just circling back on sort of this cybersecurity perspective too, to your point about legislation, we, we probably shouldn't rely on individuals to take steps to secure themselves. There probably does need to be some sort of intervention. And what does that look like? And is there enough trust and faith in the U.S. government to do that. I mean, we have these omnibus bills now and everything tries to get just tacked on because it's so hard to pass any legislation from the beginning and it's easier to just throw in a teaser here and there to get other people in. But just having simple little bills passed, I think would be help. And even maybe that starts as an executive order. Maybe it starts as if you don't do this stuff and we catch and, and you have a hack and you disclose it and we find that you didn't do it, you'll face severe like punishments and monetary fines or something. I think that's one angle. I guess the other angle too is you have to just start recognizing the way that cybersecurity is set up is just right now it's a very lucrative business. You have ransomware has steadily grown in the payouts. A ransomware attack is essentially you gain access to a system, you lock the users out, you either change the password, you delete their data, but before you delete it, you copy it and encrypt it. And so then you can, you basically ask to get payments so that you can either send the data back or give the, the people access to their systems again. But one of these hacker groups was bragging about their NPS score, saying we've hacked so many other people, we've always given the, the records over, you don't need to worry about it. And And I think that's all that you need to know is the fact that you have repeat offenders that are worried about their reputations are actually getting payments. This is the way it is, and you have to fight the battles that are happening now. It was definitely discouraging to to hear that out of anything, that NPS would be something that a hacker group isn't, cares about. I think what's happening with GameStop is sort of like like a broad example of kind of what you're describing. Like people will go on Wall Street bets and, and post their wins. And I think that like because we're so online and because we're so um, focused on and sort of like maybe like building a presence or just being social, everything that we do turns into something that you can get a badge for. And so I think that's like what you know, we run into and like, it's cool to be, but like, it's probably cool to be a hacker, right? Like you're, you know, you're tearing down something. It's like, it's kind of leaning into that anti-establishment narrative, which I think is going to become increasingly um, popular moving forward. And so it's just really a sign more to how society has sort of shifted. Like, I think hackers have always been like pretty proud of their accomplishments. And honestly, like if you can hack something, that's pretty impressive. Most of the time, the username and password is online. I don't, I'm not sure if you should get a badge for that one. But yeah, I think that's just sort of another way to zoom out and say, oh, this is really like a societal thing that we like. maybe, maybe we just got to have like a talk about how society is evolving. Those That conversation needs to happen. And I'm not really sure or encouraged, I guess, by the current just 
political and uh, cultural climate that it can happen. And you also have the question of where would this happen? A lot of the infrastructure that we've always that we've had, not always had, but had recently has always been vulnerable. But now it's vulnerable to a degree that someone with a laptop, basically anywhere, that, as long as they have the internet connection, could potentially gain control of that. I think part of the other challenge is that humans haven't really evolved, but or since since you know we we've, we've become Homo sapiens, we haven't really evolved. But at the same time, our social aspects and our behaviors have changed significantly, and so that's kind of the way in which our species has changed and moved forward. I always wonder if the fact that right now the rate of change has outpaced our ability as a culture to stay ahead of what's happening. If you don't even understand what this, what the environment that you're living in actually is, then it's really hard to have an informed conversation about what should change and what should look different. So this is a big one for me in the concept of money. Like a lot of people, well, why don't we just print more money? And I think it's their fault that they don't know. But I think the educational system does a bad job at explaining to people the society that we live in. And and we should have a conversation. What is the internet? How does it work? Um, When I was in high school, I, I, I built a computer. That was one of the requirements for a class that I was in. And that taught me a lot about like hardware. And I think having those deep dives into the things that you interact with in your day-to-day life is important. And also doing a deep dive into the concept of money, because like, it's really important that people, they understand that like, okay, you can't print more money because then we have hyperinflation theoretically. I don't know. We're kind of in a weird situation right now. Drawing attention to it is one the first step so that people are aware of it. And I know that you are a little modest, but as a TikTok influencer, you certainly have good read in helping people understand this stuff. And I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but also seriously, because a lot of people don't understand, and it's a more of a familiarity with it than anything else. If you're constantly looking at something and it looks foreign language, you're not going to be able to understand it unless you start actually immersing yourself more into it. And that requires a lot of effort. And the degree to which other people can kind of help translate it for others, the takeaway that I have is... There's a there's a sense of urgency here where if if certain steps aren't taken, then there's going to be a serious event that leads to significant loss of life. And that's probably the most troubling, whereas, you know, with things like financial literacy, yes, you can argue that that is dramatically and materially impacting people's lives every day. But I think that doesn't have as much of an immediate tone as, as some of these cyber threats. Just having that nation state versus the average ordinary citizen, the degree and the potency to which it is now, I think is pretty remarkable. These sorts of doxing things, like that's really, and people, and the thing is, getting back to your point about like us being so online, so connected, people can find out anything about you. Like you can see where you're posting from on Twitter, find your address, your Facebook, And what they're doing with this new technology, where if you take a picture and they can scan the dust, the camera lens, and connect it to other people who are taking pictures in the same vicinity based on those dust particles. That's wild. Because that means they know where you are. They know who's around you, right? That's that's terrifying. I think that encapsulates it a lot, though. If you summarize the internet, you're basically just connecting information streams. And we also, at the same time, are generating more and more information streams through this slab of glass in our pocket that we take everywhere. And soon 
soon we'll have even more devices that are connected online, like your fridge, your, you know, your smart scale and, and your, you know, the wearables and eventually we'll have glasses too. But like all that stuff is definitely a huge security concern. And I guess the way to connect this to what you're talking about with doxing or or just like troll attacks and, and stuff like that on social media, that's essentially what warfare is today. And that's, that's warfare in like air quotes, because clearly there are people on the front lines fighting. A lot of people like to say that the kinetic warfare of old is kind of gone now and it's all informational. And, but I, I think that's a poor characterization. And I think that's more of a moment in time than a um, long view. I mean, informational warfare has been around forever. You think about even in World War II, the U.S. had inflatable tanks that they'd like scatter around in fake army bases planes flying overhead that were doing recon for the Germans would think that we were positioned in areas that we weren't. And so this ability to use the information that exists and and gain intel from it is pretty significant. The world has definitely been very unique in the past since the Cold War ended, or even since World War II ended. And there haven't been as many armed conflicts, but if the U.S. really recedes and global order starts deteriorating, a lot of this kinetic warfare will actually come back into prominence, and it'll also come back in prominence at the same time that a lot of the cyber weapons will be much more honed and crafted. And to the point about the doxing people or you know cancel mobs or whatever you want to call them, those can be weaponized to the point where you either overwhelm a system, you overwhelm a person. Just from a mental standpoint, if you're dealing with an army of people barraging you and calling you names, that's going to impact your psyche. You have so many people that are generating pieces of information that can be used, and we don't have a way to monitor what that information is. Like, if you have a phone in your pocket, there's a way to figure out where you are, what you're doing, etc. Yeah, I mean, I get it because I have my Android. Google sends me an update every month on the places that I went. And and it's okay, like, thank you. But also like, wow, wow. The idea that that shouldn't be accessible, I think it's tough because like, of course, people are going to know where you live and kind of like what you're doing. But I think to the extent of like getting doxxed, it is sort of like that like what that's scary and i think that like that is happening at an increasing rate and i think to your point about like overwhelming a system you can look at what happened at the capitol back in early january of this year 2021 honestly that was people overwhelming how did that happen there's just so many things that have happened since then that we've all been at gamestop how did that's a coordinated movement almost of redditors there's these increasingly prominent, coordinated, scaled attacks. To your point, the GameStop thing just raised a huge red flag. And I guess the problem is like, this is something where, all right, you have a system that, you know, stock trading's existed for however many years in the US. No one thinks that you have this type of security flaw or or just, just serious risk. And then you have a group of people that just come together. And it's like now, like a lot of things, I guess, seemingly are starting to break. And I think that's just because we are living through the the tail end events of the internet because we hadn't had them yet and now everyone has a phone in their pocket and the question is like what more are we going to have to deal with in the next few years that raises the natural question of what's the end game here what's going to what's going to happen but i have a i have a question for you knowing what you know now 
how would you, if you were to approach going online for the first time, what would you do differently? And what do you think would, what do you think moving forward? So now at my age, so 23, going online now, hmm. how would I approach it? A large part of my life and a lot of people's lives probably moving forward is content creation. Um, so I have to have this online presence. There's this uh, double-edged sword where it's like, okay, I don't want people to know a lot about me but I also need them to know a lot about me so I can get my content out there. And I think that's the barrier that I'm running into. How much should they know? Um, yeah. Some of my friends who are in this space, I mean, you, you know, you're on the very, very tail end of people who don't share anything really. But I have friends who will share everything. They'll vlog about their daily lives. They'll show, okay, I'm, I'm at this cafe at 9 a.m. just getting a coffee. I think we do have like this funny distribution of people. Um, and a lot of people are like trying to figure out what tail end you have always are going to have a range of risk tolerances for people and you could argue that people aren't aware of the risk as much as they should be to tie it all back to the start of the conversation is what type of safeguards do we want to have in place what risk risk tolerance do we have because the likelihood of an austin texas happening in our lifetimes is probably pretty high cyber is a totally different ball game from a destruction standpoint it costs money normally to wreak havoc on an area. And you think about the costs that are needed even to just, just to develop like a regular bomb. And then you can compare that to like an atom bomb. But those those increase in, in orders of cost as they go up. But now you could argue that the cost to wage this type of warfare is decreasing. And especially as payouts are not only monetarily significant, but also from a damage and destruction standpoint, also pretty significant. The solar winds attack, the same type of attack could have led to just total carnage in our infrastructure. But this specific hacker group was focused on espionage. And so we were kind of lucky there. But I guess the question is, you know, a lot of these things have to be addressed by governments because it's just a different playing field. But we need to start considering more of this stuff in the public space because moving forward, especially as we elect new leaders, we need to make sure that we're setting ourselves up for the future and not <laughs> positioning ourselves even more in a in a like open, exposed place. I keep on I'm bringing up the Matt Green tweet again. And like one thing that he said at the very end is there's a lot of amazing systems in people's heads but a lot of them haven't been uncovered because they don't have this pot of gold baked into it, like Bitcoin. Mm. That's the same thing with this uh, cybersecurity stuff. It's really easy. It's really profitable to hack and, and to get paid and to do ransom and, and that sort of thing. But is it as profitable to have that defensive? Because I think what you're saying about profit makes sense. You don't see the immediate payout as insurance. You can pay that. You can pay it. You might never need it, but you got to have it, right? And But that goes against how we think of money and how we think of profit. And we run into this in investing, right? I'll just YOLO it. It's just human nature to think very, very short term. And I think that's another issue with the cybersecurity is, is that situation. Short term thinking, it's not going to impact me. If it affects me, it'll affect everybody. There's definitely an element to me. This is basically governed by the fact that human nature is very short term focused, individual focused. And that's kind of the opposite of what you need for the system. I do have to think that there has to be a solution where similar to like Stripe having an API for payments, like there in the future, I'd like to imagine a place where there's some sort of security API where there's a plug and play modules that you can use that 
at least in the initial setup, can help you better defend. The other aspect, too, is the there's a lot that's going on that we can barely even comprehend. Like, I know there are a few natural language processing companies, NLP, that are focused on summarizing text and reports, and that's very useful. But they're also now starting to be used for counter disinformation campaigns. NLP models can be poisoned pretty easily based on text that looks benevolent, but there's random words inserted into there that actually skew the results. Text is just raw inputs. It does, the computers aren't actually understanding what's going on. We're dealing with a problem that we're very short-term focused as a society, and a lot of these problems should be considered from a long-term lens. And you know, this is where like governments should ideally come in and step in and help. You know, think about ways that they can fortify our society. <laughs> I keep on circling back to this idea of trust, right? Alex Good, uh, who is on Twitter, of course, he had a really good write-up on like the equity markets and kind of like the memeing of the equity markets. And I think that we have the memeing of the U.S. government the past four years. Um, however you feel politically, that was just a lot. I wonder, are people going to trust the government with this sort of thing, especially after this pandemic, where it's okay, government you had the opportunity to really, yeah. you screwed up everything. To, to steal Charlie Munger's line, like show me incentives and I'll tell you the outcome. Like the, the outcome is that the U.S. is probably going to be the best country in the world for vaccinations. But we also were one of the worst countries in handling the initial outbreak of the pandemic. And there's a lot of, you know, takeaways you can have from that. But I'm curious what you're, you're thinking of for open source and how this plays out. One thing that I've been thinking about is in regards to crypto, a lot of these projects are considered useful. Like the the open source nature of them is obviously a feature and it's really attractive that it's not centralized behind one source. But on the other hand, you're relying on people most of the time off of their own goodwill focused on building and supporting these projects. And Yes, there's some token economics and some incentive structures there. But by and large, if this becomes main infrastructure for the internet, what are you going to do when a lot of these projects aren't as exciting? So you have this issue where inherently a lot of these projects aren't going to be sexy in the long run. Like whatever you're doing right now in crypto is probably going to be obsolete or maybe it'll just be stale in the long run. And so that's another thing that I've been wondering about in this going back to the centralization, decentralization spaces. One thing I wonder is if governments in general can step in and say, you know, we'll give you tax credits or we'll reimburse you or something to work on certain projects if they deem them mission critical, or maybe even they just assume them into a public good and then they manage them. I'm sure <laughs> there's a lot of... Yeah, there's probably a lot of issues with the government assuming an API. Yeah, I think that's like a really interesting point is what happens when this stuff doesn't become as cool and interesting and like what yeah. happens with NFTs, like once that space sort of, you know, calms down, you know, and I think that's a good point. People do want to work on the next big thing and they really do want to enact change. And I think that it's just going to tie back to Munger's quote, like, how do you incentivize people? How do you make sure that they realize that you have to maintain some things in order to build great things? And that's a, yeah, that's a tough, that's an interesting question and worrying too. Because I think like, yeah. well, 
right now, and you, you can see it in the stock market, it's kind of growth at any cost, right? We'll give you a 50 times, you know, revenue uh, multiple. You're a flying helicopter company, it makes sense, right? No, it doesn't. We have these like huge expectations for growth. And it's like, well, what if we just, what if we just maintained? The one other thing I've been thinking about, and unfortunately it looks like this isn't as feasible based on some of the research, is having some sort of digital Geneva conventions. And this would be the hope that nations would come together and say, all right, ransomware attacks on hospitals are a no-no. And types of things like that would certainly be beneficial for societies. The challenge, apparently, is that because a lot of these nation states, Russia and China were given as examples, because they uh, have plausible deniability on a lot of these attacks, they don't actually... A lot of the conventions, if they were enacted or if there were like rules set in place, it wouldn't really matter because a lot of the you know soldiers in this new digital conflict, they're third parties that are contracted out or they're you know some shadow organization that's kind of helping out loosely with the government initiatives. I don't know if that that circles back to what we were just talking about with open source, but that was another thing that just popped in my mind that I'm curious about. <laughs> Yeah, and I didn't realize I skirted your question about open source, but I'm like obviously pretty like, interested in open source. I think it's definitely the way forward, really bullish on the creator economy. But yeah, I mean, I think there's like also this incentivizing issues with open source as well. I wrote up this piece about Roblox and the whole thesis was it's an open source economy, but how do you make sure, how do you monetize that? How do you make sure that people are willing to continue to contribute and that's a question I don't have the answer to. First, early stages of the internet was just figuring out how to monetize things and figuring out the business models. And that's why you had like the dot-com bust is because one, there's a lot of mania and capital chasing deals and few good companies, but also two, people didn't know how to do you know, SaaS revenue and what that model looked like. And I, I think right now that's a common trend in crypto is it's really hard to figure out how you're going to monetize these platforms that are inherently open source and there's not a lot of actual ownership and the company structure is just a lot different than having a founding stake in a company that you co-found in a traditional sense. This kind of goes back to that tweet you're referencing about people have these grand ideas, but they don't have the way to execute Mm -hmm. them or they're still lost in someone's mind and not in the real world. What if there are business models that we haven't invented or we haven't executed on that would either solve some of these problems and change the incentive structure or do all of the above. But that's something that also is probably going to be a factor for crypto, but I wonder if it also be important for cyber. Mm, yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah. It, yeah. Cause like evaluating every company based on free cash flow probably doesn't like, maybe that doesn't make sense anymore. We really just need to reevaluate our decision-making frameworks. And this gets into the root of how do we, how do we learn how do we think about things? And maybe all of that sort of has to be, this is like so meta, but like has to be reevaluated. And at the end of the day, if you step back, you kind of just have to remember that for most people, life is just carrying on. And a lot of these big world changing trends, even some of the stuff you mentioned, like in the past four years, you know, whether it's politics, some tech company news, startup space stuff, whatever it is a lot of the world just kind of keeps on turning and doesn't really think about it. And I think that's, it's helpful at times because it's really easy to get depressed about some of these 
things that are coming about and coming to a head. And at the same time, it's also frustrating because you want to start to change things quickly. But I think the best thing is if, if there are concrete steps that people are taking, this type of stuff is just for better or for worse, how humans operate. And there's probably going to be short-term pain, but hopefully there's long-term gain. Some of our problems today are probably going to seem minuscule compared to future generations. So I guess having that healthy sense of cosmic understanding of the insignificance of some of the stuff, then that's helpful. But that also shouldn't mean that you just ignore this stuff and that you actually spend time trying to solve it. It it goes all into human nature on the the timeline that we're at, but a hundred years from now, if there's still a planet Earth, (laughs) uh, depending on the climate change, uh, maybe all this stuff, like this whole conversation, like someone will listen to it a hundred years from now and just be like, why were they even, what? Like cybersecurity? Yeah, they'd laugh at uh, (laughs) how how stupid some of these things were. That's a good point too, because a lot of today's problems are from yesterday's solutions. Mm -hmm. And there's just like this inevitable you know, whatever you create, the system adapts. It always kind of airs towards chaos. And so you're going to constantly keep inventing new problems that you have to solve. So that's that's one aspect to it. But it, it's mind shattering to think about stuff that we can't even comprehend that are going to be massive challenges. And, you know, whether that's as we try and colonize <laughs> space, whether it's we're trying to grapple with a new world or maybe we're dealing with a meteor, impending meteor strike that we have to stop, you know, like that, those types of problems will likely always occur and similar to cyber it probably seems really it probably seems really fruitless and i guess depressing in the short term but in the long run i mean <laughs> there are plenty of periods in human history where people weren't sure that we were going to make it and here we are so if if there's a common thread it's the end is always near but we invariably find a way through it even if we're stumbling through it and I think that's, we've been kind of hitting hard on human nature, like, but I think humans inherently, we can move forward um, and overcome some of this stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on, <laughs> on humanity. Well, thank you for talking and we will talk again soon.